Good morning, church. We are in Genesis chapter 8. We're going to be verses 1 through 19 this morning. I, uh, I left my Bible at home, but I found a large print one back there, so uh, I can read it. I read this quote by Warren Wiersbe that said, uh, when anxious believers are searching for something encouraging to read, they're more likely to turn to Romans chapter 8 than to Genesis chapter 8. I mean, after all, Romans chapter 8 is one of the most uh, heartening chapters in Scripture, and Genesis chapter 8 just describes God's mop-up after the flood. But the next time you find yourself in a storm, Genesis 8 can actually give you a lot of new hope and encouragement, because the theme of the chapter is just that, really. The theme of the chapter is renewal and rest after tribulation. So this chapter is about the end of a storm, and it's about new beginnings, and of course we worship a God of new beginnings, right? He says, behold, I'm making all things new uh, in Revelation. He also says, see, I'm doing a new thing in Isaiah. And of course you can testify this uh, concerning uh, new beginnings. You can testify concerning this yourself. Because very importantly, as it says in Second Corinthians chapter 5, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Uh, the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. So he has made you new. And your life has a new beginning because we are regenerated, we are renewed, we are born again. Uh, we are adopted, justified, redeemed, reconciled, and chosen. Uh, in Jesus, we are more than conquerors, and we have hope in that. So let's read this morning in Genesis chapter 8, verses 1 through 19. Genesis chapter 8, verses 1 through 19. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. And God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. Also, the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed, and the rain from the sky was restrained, and the water receded steadily from the earth. And at the end of 150 days, the water decreased. In the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. The water decreased steadily until the 10th month. And in the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. Then it came about at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. And he sent out a raven. And it flew here and there until the water was dried up from the earth. And then he sent out a dove from him to see if the water was abated from the face of the land. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot. So she returned to him into the ark, for the water was on the surface of all the earth. And then he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark to himself. And so he waited yet another seven days. And he again sent out the dove from the ark. And the dove came to him towards evening, and behold... In her beak was a freshly picked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the water was abated from the earth. And then he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove. But she did not return to him again. Now it came about in the 601st year, in the first month, on the first of the month, the water was dried up from the earth. And then Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. And then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, 
you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. And so Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him and every beast and every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by their families from the ark. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. And I thank you for the encouragement and the strength and the hope that's found in your word, even in Genesis chapter 8. So I pray, Lord, that your spirit speak it to us this morning, that it is speak it to our hearts and encourage us and strengthen us, lift us up, Lord. Pray that you speak to all those that are here this morning and all those that are just watching online. Pray you bless them and love them. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So... God remembered Noah. God hadn't forgotten Noah, just in case you were wondering what that meant, right? For God as in, you know, to put out of one's mind, God didn't forget Noah. If you know the beginning from the end, as God does, uh, you can't forget anything. It's as simple as that, right? The Hebrew word there for remembered is zakar, and it gives us the idea to act on the behalf of another. So it's not saying that God all of a sudden was like, oh, Nuts, right? I forgot. Noah's been out there, you know, for five months, seven months, whatever, floating on the water. I better go tend to him and see how he's doing. Um, that wasn't it at all. What it means is that God began to act now on Noah's behalf. God is turning his attention now to Noah. Now was the time for him to do that. So the phrase, it's a very powerful phrase, actually. The phrase, God remembered Noah actually implies a previous commitment made by God, as in a promise to Noah, and announces, therefore, the coming fulfillment of that said commitment, right? the coming fulfillment of that promise. So when it says that God remembered Noah, now what it's saying is, okay, now's the time for me to fulfill my promise to you, Noah. All right? So God does three things. We see right here in the beginning, after God remembered Noah, right? And he also remembers all the beasts and the cattle in the ark too, just in case you thought they were meaningless and didn't matter to God. That's not true, right? It says God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle. It says the first thing that God did is he caused a wind to pass over the earth and the water subsided. Interestingly enough, of course, that uh, Hebrew word for wind is rock, ruach. Uh, and that's the same word that's used for spirit, Matter of fact, in every use so far up to this chapter 8 here, it's pretty much been translated spirit. So you go all the way back to Genesis 1-2, when it says the spirit of the God hovered over the faces of the water and the beginning of creation there. That's the same word, ruach. And then it's in Genesis 3 and Genesis 6 and you know, in Genesis 7, etc. Every use of it up to this point so far has been translated spirit. But here it's translated wind because what God is doing, or the Spirit of God, you could say, is that he's using the natural force of the wind right, to abate or subside the waters. That's the first thing God does. And I just want to bring this out, not that uh, um, it matters a lot to you, but the word here, subsided, at the, at the end of verse 1, the Hebrew word here, you're going to see that word. You're going to see these words, abate, uh, subside, throughout this whole chapter. And they're not all the same word. They're not all the same Hebrew word. 
So the very first word here for subsided is not the same word, for example, that we're going to see later on when he talks about the water subsiding. They actually have different meanings. But here what he's talking about is uh, uh, it's more like um, appeased. Right? The waters are appeased. <laughs> right? So now that the waters are appeased. So God uses stormy winds it actually tells us this in the Bible. It tells us this in Psalms 148, that God uses stormy winds to fulfill his word. Think about that the next time you're in the middle of a windstorm and you're listening to the wind blow around. Remember, God says he uses stormy winds to fulfill his word. Interesting. So he makes this wind blow over all the earth. The waters subsided, right? Not a big problem to God. He can, you know, so the waters are appeased, whatever that means. And then the second thing that he does is he closes the floodgates of the deep. Remember, the water came from above, rain, the canopy that had been over the earth from creation was now broken, and the rainwater came down. It hadn't rained before until that time. And then the waters came from below too. So there was these huge caverns of water, these huge reservoirs of water that were under the ground that now came up forth from the ground. Now this changed the face of the earth as well because now these huge caverns that had once been just flat ground when the water came up were now like valleys. Right? So, so the water comes up from the ground but he, now he closes the floodgates. So all the waters that's coming up from the ground now you know, he turned off the he turned it off. Right? So there's no more water coming up from the ground. And it says he also therefore then shut the windows of heaven. Right? The, the floodgates of the sky, the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed, right? And it says that the rain of the, from the sky was restrained, which means it was withheld. So he, so he restricted now the rain that was coming from the sky and he closed off everything that was coming from below and he stopped all the water. He stopped all the water. And it, one thing you have to, I mean, scientifically, and you just look at this from a scientific point, um, Wind, waves, evaporation, right? They can't really account for more than a minor lowering of water. So I wanted to, I just bring that up because like, where did all the water go? I mean, there was water 300 feet above the tallest mountain that covered the entire earth. God shuts the water up and then it recedes. Ice, yeah, that's part of it, actually. That is part of it, right? So because, because of the, the whole environment changed as far as temperature and everything, so that is part of it. And some people think that's where the Ice Age came from as well, right? So anyway, a God who can bring all the water can get rid of all the water as well. So one of the things, um, though... When we look about it, because of the flood, there's been, you know, there was a whole lot of changes that happened to the earth, of course. There's actually more water now, they think, than there was previous to the flood. Now, the earth today is like, what, 71% water or something like that? Um, and, and then the earth became mo a more hostile environment. Before, it was a perfect environment. Temperature was controlled. Everything was controlled. There was always the dew the, for the vegetation. I mean, it was just a perfect environment to live in. But now it's a more hostile environment because the whole canopy's gone. The weather isn't, you know, the, the heat, the cold, all these different range of temperatures that they didn't have before because before it was more controlled. It's also barren now. 
because of the flood. We don't have that thermal vapor. There's more mountain ranges. Matter of fact, mountain ranges are probably higher than they were before. Because if you think about it, uh, mountains, you know, the flood was 300 feet high above the tallest mountain. But if the bottom of the ground was here and that was a huge reservoir that now was broken up because the water came up from the ground, now all of a sudden, however deep that was, is now where the bottom of the ground is. So mountain ranges became higher, right? I mean, the flood greatly altered the contours of the land and created new areas for water to fill, as well as, you know, uh, probably underwater and on the surface. But Psalms 104, and I read this a couple weeks ago, I'm going to read it again, but this actually tells us a lot of what happened. Psalms 104, it describes at the beginning here in chapter five, in verse 5, it talk, in 104 verse 5, it talks about creation, and at the end it talks about the flood. And it says that God, says God set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. God covered it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. That's the flood. So it starts off with creation and then goes right to the flood. The water stood above the mountains. And then it says, at your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took the flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to a place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that, you, so that they may not again cover the earth. So where did all the water go? God just told it to leave. <laughs> and it left, right? It fled. It got out of here. God said, scatter. It scattered, right? I mean, a God powerful enough to cover the earth with water, like I said, is wise enough to know how to dispose of it when the work is done. The waters fled. They took the flight because God rebuked them. He said, get out of here. You're done. And they said, okay, we're leaving. And they left, right? Which is actually kind of what is being told in verse 3. In verse 3 it says, And the water receded steadily from the earth. And at the end of 150 days the water decreased. So at the end of the five months the water started decreasing. When it says that the water receded steadily from the earth there at the beginning of the verse, what that means in the Hebrew is that it receded rapidly. Right, it wasn't just a. I mean, we, we you know we've seen our backyards flood, we've seen our kitchens flood, we've seen all kinds of things flood, and we can you know, we know how f- fast water recedes. Sometimes it all depends. It's you know it, how f- quick it dissipates or goes. But in this case, the water just it just it went rapidly, so it it started receding rapidly, and this was. In the seventh month, it tells us in verse 4, on the 17th day of the month, it says, the water had receded enough that the ark then rested on Mount Ararat. This is very interesting that we're getting these dates, specific dates. Okay, Seventh month on the 17th day of the month. See, the seventh month of the Jewish civil year was later made into the first month of their religious year. They have more than one calendar, just to confuse you. The first month of the religious year, on the 14th day, is the Passover. That's the day Christ was crucified. So therefore, the first month of the religious year, on the 17th day, is the third day in which Christ rose. In whom, of course, we find our rest. This is the same exact day that the ark rested on Mount Ararat. Right? But it's interesting also that it says that the ark rested, as in the ark had been laboring for five months. 
I mean, laboring while it accomplished its mission of salvation. Laboring while it's being tossed back and forth on the waves, even though it was floating safely. And obviously God knew how to design an ark and no one was in danger. It had been laboring for five months and now it's found rest. This is also the second mention of the word rest in Genesis. Do you remember what the first mention of the rest in the book of Genesis is? God rested, right? Chapter 2. Right On the seventh day, God rested. That's the first mention. And also, it's interesting to think of, of course, that Noah's name means rest. So what's the Hebrew word that's used here for rested in verse 4? Well, it's Nuach, which is basically Noah. Noah's word is Noah's name is actually Noach, and this word is Nuach, and they're basically the same word. They kind of consider them the same word, even though they're not exactly the same. So, the ark's resting safely on the top of a mountain. I guess you can call that safe, right? It's going to be a treacherous journey down probably for them, but the ark is is resting safely on the top of the mountain. And now what does Noah do? What can Noah do? Noah has to wait. He has to wait on the Lord. And waiting sometimes is the toughest part. Especially when you know that the storm's done. Right? Noah didn't know. Remember, we've talked about this. Noah had no idea how long the storm was going to last. The only thing the Lord told him was, it's going to make it, I'm going to make it rain for 40 days and 40 nights. And he did. Right? And then, I mean, that's a month, a little over a month. And then here we are, five months down the road. Finally, the waters start decreasing. And we get a little bit beyond that, and the ark's rested. Now the ark is rested on the mountain. Noah can see that the waters are decreasing. And he's like, all right, <laughs> but we can't leave yet. We're not going to go until God tells us to. We have to wait. We've been waiting. The Lord had never told us exactly how long this was going to take. We've been waiting, and now we just have to continue waiting. Waiting sometimes is the toughest part. Waiting on the Lord. Because when you trust God, you know, you should be able to be more patient. I say should. Patience isn't, right, is difficult. But it's, it's not just waiting for something, you know. Your patience is not just waiting for something, but it's also, patience is also about how you wait. What do you do when you're waiting? How are you handling that time as you wait upon the Lord? So what did Noah do? Right? What did Noah do during that time? Well, it tells us in verse 5, it says, The waters decreased steadily until the 10th month. So, so now Noah's been watching the water decrease steadily, rapidly, for three months. It's a lot of water, right? A whole earth full. He's been watching it now decrease for three months. Right? It says that uh, in the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. So now he can start seeing the tops of all the mountains out there. So what did Noah do? He opens a window. And every time I read this, I ask the same question. Noah waited 40 days to open a window? 
if you're on that arc and you've been on that arc for over five months, as this point is now, you're actually seven months, you know, 10 months or, or, you know, into it. Uh, you're just now opening a window. I mean, I would open that window a long time ago. I can't imagine the smell in the arc. I'd have been like fresh air, please. But Noah opens a window, but he has a purpose for opening the window, obviously. Right. And so he opens a window which he had made, and he sends out a raven. And it says that the raven just flew here and there. It never returned to the ark. Right? The ravens are, are scavenger birds. They're also thought of as one of the smartest birds out there. They're, but they're an unclean animal. And what that means is that, is that they eat meat. Right? Ravens are, uh, eat meat. So ravens are, are flying around, having no problem landing on floating carcasses and feasting. They're not coming back to the ark. They had no qualms about resting on unclean places. Unclean bird, you know, resting on unclean places. They had no problem with it. So they don't come back to the ark. So then he sends out a dove. Well, the dove couldn't find a place. The dove was a clean animal. The dove couldn't find a place to rest. It wasn't going to land on the carcass. You know, you know, I'm not going to, there's no clean place for me to land, so the dove comes back to the ark. So Noah brings the dove back in. So he sends out, he waits seven days, as it tells us, um, in verse 9, or verse 10, it says he waited yet another seven days, and he sent the dove out again. All right? And this time it returns with an olive branch. Right? Which means, hey, plants are growing. Right? Olive trees, specifically. Right? Olive trees are alive and growing. Right? Olive trees. It says that Noah then knew that the water had abated. Right? It had gotten even lower. Yeah, the, the water is, means a, of a little account at this point. It wasn't, it wasn't a worrisome. But Noah, again, doesn't rush out from the ark. You would think at this point he might be like, okay, come on, start packing, start packing your bags. Let's throw the ladder over the side and let's get out of here. Finding olive trees, he doesn't. He waits seven more days and he sends out another dove. And that dove doesn't return. That dove does not come back. And so he knew at that point that probably it was getting close to the time that they could leave the ark. Now, the dove and the olive trees, there's a lot of symbolism going on here with this. And of course, we know, you know the dove is a universal sign of peace. And the olive branch is said to be the universal sign of forgiveness. And, and interestingly enough, the Jews don't actually use the dove as a sign of peace. It's the Christians who adopted that. Somewhere around like St. Augustine or something like that, they adopted the dove as a sign of peace. And of course, we can look throughout history, we see the dove on everything. I mean, Picasso in 1949 used the dove on a poster for the World Peace Congress. World Peace Congress adopted the dove as their symbol, right? And uh, so we've seen doves on, on everything. 
So the olive tree as well and the olive branch right, have been symbols of peace and, re- and reconciliation as well ever since Noah's time. Right? It's a promise for a new beginning for humanity. It's, it's talking about peace and reconciliation with God. It's renewal and revival. Right? The slow and hearty growth of the olive tree also implies establishment and peace, which is, which is where we you know, get that phrase, uh, you know, extend the, the olive branch. More on that in just a second. So the dove is a, so we have the dove, which is a symbol of peace, but the dove is also a symbol of the Holy Spirit, right? When Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit descended on him uh, in bodily form, it says, as, as a dove. And the dove, you know, was a, is a symbol of purity, holiness, and innocence. So the dove gives us this picture of God declaring peace with mankind after the flood. After he had purged the earth of its wickedness. The dove is kind of like his spirit bringing the good news of reconciliation back to the ark when it brings back the olive branch. Of course, it was temporary reconciliation because lasting reconciliation only comes through Christ. But again, you also have the olive branch, which is also a symbol of peace. And then then the Bible, olive trees... They were essential source of food. They were lamp oil. They were medicine. They were anointing oil. They were sacrificial oil. You know, they'd be used on wood or furniture. Right? They played a significant role in the, the region's economy. Uh, today, olive oil is still considered good for your health. The olive branch dates back before the time of Christ, five centuries before the time of Christ. In Greek, in, in ancient Greece, they they were really fond of the olives. It was um, uh, along with uh, the goddess of peace, Irene, um, who herself supposedly, according to mythology, was fond of olives. So you had the whole thing tied in with that. And to the ancient Greeks, the olive tree represented abundance and was also believed to be able to drive away evil spirits. So you have all this symbolism with doves and olive trees. You know, some of the oldest olive trees in the world, where are they? They're in the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. Right? They're 800 to 900 years old or more. If you ever go over to Jerusalem and you go to the Garden of Gethsemane, those olive trees, right? you're, you're near some of the oldest olive trees in the world at that point. The olive tree is an extremely slow-growing plant, and it requires years of patient labor to reach its full fruitfulness. And so I talked about that phrase, the idea of extending the olive branch. That's the idea behind it. When someone says, let us make peace, they extend you that olive branch. That's the idea. They're saying, instead of warring, instead of fighting, let's spend the time needed to patiently labor and grow this fruit of peace. That's what the idea is when they extend you the olive branch. So the flowering, thriving, fruitful olive tree is really a picture or a model of, the righteous, of a righteous, godly person. At the same time, though, we should, we should know about olive trees is that God also prunes the ineffective and fruitless branches from the olive tree and he discards them. And thankfully, for us, he also grafts in branches from the wild olive tree whose root was weak, as it tells us. And he gives them life through the root of the cultivated olive tree. That's Jesus. 
right? Which is now how we have been adopted into the family of God. Because our branch has been grafted into the root of the cultivated olive tree, right? And olive oil is also a symbol of the Holy Spirit. So both of these things, the dove and the olive branch, are both symbols of the Holy Spirit. They're both symbols of peace. They're both symbols of renewal and reconciliation, you know, forgiveness, purity, things like that. Just read Matthew 25. Read the parable of the ten virgins. That's where you can pick up on some of that, right? The wise virgins had their lamps lit, and they had extra oil. And the unwise, foolish virgins, they had to go shopping for theirs because they didn't have enough. They weren't ready. And so therefore they missed the bridegroom coming and they missed the wedding party. So the dove and the olive branch, again, universal symbols of peace today. And where does it come from? Right here. Right, right here in Genesis chapter 8. So today we see it on coins and we see it on stamps and we see it on flags and we see it on churches. It's a symbol for our church. It's a symbol for the Calvary Chapel movement. You see it on Woodstock Rock Festival posters. I mean, the dove is, the dove is everywhere on everything. Governments use it. Organizations use it. But what was Noah doing sending out all these birds. Right? Because all that symbolism we can look at today. But Noah wasn't thinking of any of that. He was just sending out birds to see what they were doing. So what is Noah doing when he's sending out the ravens and the doves? Some people think it's unbelief. Some people think it was a lack of faith on Noah's part. Like he was testing God. I know you promised, but I want to see if the promise is true. Right. But, I'm, but I don't agree with that. You know, the, the Bible tells us not to test the Lord. Okay? Now, when it's talking about that, telling us not to test the Lord, then at the same time, it also tells us to test the Lord. Okay? You're like, well, wait a minute. The Bible tells us two things here. It tells us not to test the Lord, and then it tells them that, to test the Lord, to see the th- you know, test the spirit of the Lord, to test the, the things that are good. What am I supposed to do? When it's saying not test, have you ever used that phrase, don't test me on this? Right? With your kids, for example. I use that phrase with my kids a lot. Don't test me on this. Right? That's what the Lord is saying. The Lord is saying, listen, my word is, my word is golden. It's true. It is the truth. You don't need to test me on this. What I say will come to pass. What I promise, will, I will fulfill. Right? Some people, they want to they test the Lord in that sense. They want to say, I know he says that, but I'm going to go see if that's true or not. I know he says that, but let's see what happens when I do this. The Lord says, don't test me on this. Because you're going to come up on the wrong side of things. But at the same time, it tells us to test the Lord. What is it telling us to do? It's telling us to, to make sure that the word we're hearing is from the word of God. Test it. Check it out. Make sure it matches up. That's okay. You heard a word, you think it's from the God, test it. Make sure it's from God. Don't just listen to all the spirits that are out there. Make sure it's from God. Right? So there is a testing that is appropriate to do. And there's a testing that you shouldn't do. <laughs> Don't test the God. Don't test the Lord, right? If he tells you it's going to happen, trust him. It's going to happen. Some people, you know, like, like uh, you know, 
like Gideon, right? He puts out the fleece. You guys know the story of Gideon putting out the fleece. The, the Lord had told Gideon what he was going to do. Gideon wanted to, he, he, he just was like, well, are you sure? I'm going to put out a fleece. Right? If this is really how you're going to do it, I'm going to put this fleece out, and in the morning, the dew will be all, all over the ground around the fleece, but not on the fleece. It'll be dry. Right? And so when he woke up in the morning, it was exactly like that. The ground was all wet, but the fleece was dry. And he was like, oh, well, don't get mad at me, Lord. But tomorrow, I'm going to put the fleece out again. And this time, if the fleece is wet and the ground is dry, then yes, I'll know, you know, whatever the way it went, I'll know that it's your word. And so the next morning, it was exactly like that, right? The fleece was wet and the ground was dry. And he's like, okay. But the Lord had already told him what he was going to do. He already told him. He didn't need to do that. He could have just trusted that the, what the Lord said was the Lord was going to fulfill. But he kept testing it. Noah's not doing that either, actually. I don't believe Noah's doing that as well. Right? He's, he's showing discernment is what he's showing. Right? He's gathering data. Uh, he has an understanding of the situation. Right? He can see that the water's lowering. He knows that the ark is resting on a rock. He knows that God has promised to see them through the storm, that this is their salvation, right? Yet, you know, even though he has an understanding of the salvation, the situation, the word tells us, don't lean on your own understanding, right? Don't do it. So he's trying not to lean on his own understanding. Okay, well, let me send out some birds and we'll check some stuff out, see what they do, how they respond. You know, being obedient to the will of the Lord is not only doing the right things in the right way for the right motive. And the right motive, by the way, is unto the Lord, right? Do all things unto the, as unto the Lord. But it also means doing things at the right time as well. You know, don't get the cart in front of the horse. So Noah is showing discernment here, right? I, I, I want to leave. I want to get off the ark. It looks like we can get off the ark, but I want to make sure it's the right time to go, right? I want to make sure... It's the right time to go. He's trying to determine, he's, he's not trying to determine whether or not God's word is true, right? But he is trying to determine when is it going to be fulfilled? When is the fulfillment? When can we get off the ark, right? The earth is drying up. I see the signs. We're getting closer, Lord. I know the moment's coming, right? When is it going to be? And so in verse 13, it says, now it came about in the 601st year, in the first month, on the first of the month, the water was dried up from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. I don't know what the covering of the ark is. A lot of people like to debate. It's not the same. You know, when we talked about when he was building the ark, there's that Hebrew word for pitch back in chapter 6. That means atonement. This is not the same thing. So he's not talking about removing the pitch from the ark or the ceiling on the outside of the ark. Because it says that he looks and he can tell that the surface of the ground was dried up. The ark is, is, is what, 50 feet high? something like that, estimates, right? So if he's removing something up above at the top, how well can you see whether or not the ground is completely dried up? Or did he climb down into the bottom of the ark and punch the hole in the bottom, right? Remove some sort of covering down there and look through the bottom to see whether or not the ground was completely dried up. I don't know what he did. 
But somehow he could tell by removing this covering, he got a good look at the earth that he could tell that the earth was all dried up. But yet he still doesn't leave the ark. He still waits. And then it says, in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. So it passes another month, a month and a half. And finally, in verse 15, God spoke to Noah. And he says, go. Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Right? Noah removed the covering. He saw that the ground was dry. Right? You know, this, this journey that he's on, which he possibly thought was just going to be a 40-day, 40 40-night 40 event, right? That, 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 that when it was longer than that, then he, when it rests on the rare rat, right, on the 17th day of the seventh month, he's like, okay, maybe this is it. And now it's been over a year from when it started. Now he looks at the, at the ground and he says, it's done. The earth is dry. But yet he still doesn't rush yet. He doesn't rush out of the ark. He doesn't just throw on his backpack and lead his family out. I'm not sure that he could anyway. The Lord closed him in. I think the Lord has to let him get out, right? But he didn't make a move until he heard from the Lord. And still, even though he saw that the ground was dry, he still has to wait another month and a half until he hears God tell them, go. Right? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Our faith, our obedience should be in response to God's word. The earth was dry. God says to Noah, go forth. Finally. A year and 17 days later, or however long it's been. Right? God sends Noah out from the ark. God called Noah onto the ark. Now God is sending Noah from the ark. Right? They're complementary to each other. Christ says, come to me, all who are heavy laden, and you will find rest. And then after that, he says, go into the world and preach the gospel. Right? We see it throughout the Bible. I love how it says at the end here in verse 19, every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by their families. Noah's family and all the animals and their families leave the ark. They exit. Like I said, you're at a high altitude. We know that Mount Ararat today is around 17,000 uh, feet tall. We don't know exactly where the ark is in relation to the highest peaks of the mountain, but at least not at that time. So leaving the ark could have been a difficult departure, but it was probably easier than what they had just gone through for the last year. And it probably felt like heaven, quite frankly. We're off the ark, right? We're on dry ground. And we'll look at their response to this next week. But for you, what does this all mean? Right? What can you take from this for this week? A couple of things. One, it's normal for us that when we go through difficulties, when we go through storms, when we go through calamities like this, um, it's, it's normal for us to feel forsaken. Right? It's normal for us to feel alone. It, that's nothing new. Noah probably even felt this way. Right? By faith, he built the ark. By faith, he entered into the ark. By faith, he placed his life into the hands of God. Right? And then as the Lord promised, the waters came and it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. And you know, That's all that the Lord had told him. He didn't know how, what was going on after that. But you know, after the rain subsided, Noah might have thought, hey, it's okay. All right, the rain stopped. Maybe we're going to get off this thing. And then the waters just kept rising. 
And they rose and rose and rose, it tells us, for 150 days, for five months. The waters prevailed over the earth, right? That word prevailed means to be stronger, mightier, to be powerful. So that means that Noah was getting quite the boat ride, right? And yet the ark floated safely on the face of the water. The water kept rising. It was 15 cubits higher than any of the top of the tallest mountains at that time. That's about 300 feet above the tallest mountains. The water just rose and rose and rose. Not, Noah, you know, we don't have any record of what he thought or what he felt or anything, what he was going through at the time emotionally. But you know what? He might have been getting impatient at this time. Right? He, he, the, the family might have been getting on each other's nerves uh, there's, there's no record of God speaking to Noah at all during the time that he's on the ark. None. God calls him onto the ark. God shuts him into the ark. And God doesn't speak to him for a year that we know of. So yeah, Noah could have felt forsaken. Noah could have felt abandoned. Noah, he could have felt alone, forgotten, right? He might have said, Lord, why have you forsaken me? He might have cried out to God at night like, well, Lord, where are you? When are we getting off this thing? Right? Are we there yet? <laughs> When's this storm going to pass? When will this be done? It tells us in Philippians not to be anxious about anything. But in prayer and supplication, let, you know, let your requests be made known to God. Noah was probably throwing his requests out there, trying not to be anxious about everything that they were going through. Lord, when, when is this going to be over? Where are you? Speak to me. It's always good for us to remember that when we go through things like this, no matter how far away God seems at the moment, the Lord has promised us that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Right? Hebrews 13.5 tells us that. And Hebrews 13.5 is really just quoting De- Deuteronomy 31.6. And Deuteronomy 31.6 says, Be strong and courageous, do not fear or be in dread, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. So when we go through these things in life, and we all go through them, it's easy for us to feel that we're alone and we've been abandoned and we're doing this by ourselves, and that God's not with us. And God says, no, it's just the opposite. I have never left you. I have never forsaken you. I will see you through. And we can just put our faith in that, right? God will see us through. What he starts, he finishes. What he promises, he fulfills. We have hope in that. We have hope in that, especially during these trying times in which we live, right? God has promised that his children will not suffer wrath. He's gone to prepare a place for them and that he's going to come back and get them. He hasn't forgotten. God hasn't forgotten, We can be sure that God never forgets or forsakes his people because of his promises, because of his character. God is love and God is faithful. He cannot deny himself or his word. He is faithful and he can never change. He is immutable. You know what immutable means, right? It means unable to be changed, right? Unchangeable. That means God cannot change for the better and God cannot change for the worse. He doesn't need to. He's perfect. He's holy. So we can depend on him. We can depend on him through thick and thin. No matter the storm or the circumstances, no matter how we feel, thankfully, our feelings have no effect on God's promises. Thankfully. Right? Because we, our feelings go up and down, man. They're like roller coaster rides. And one day we're praising the Lord, and the next day we're cursing him. But our feelings have no effect on God's promises. None. And he's with us. 
the entire time, even when we're cranky, even when we're throwing fits, right? Even when we're like, I want to get off this ride. He's right there. God will see you through. I want to end with this verse. It's Isaiah 43, 2. It says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. When you read that verse, there's a couple of things you need to understand. One, he's not saying that you're not going to go through the waters. He's not saying that you're not going to have to go through the rivers. He's not saying that you're not going to go through the fire. He's not saying right that you're not going to go through the flame. He says that when you go through these things, when you go through them, when you pass through them, they're not going to... They're, they're not going to overwhelm you. You're not going to be burned. They're not going to consume you. Why? Because the Lord is with you. Because the Lord is with you. Right? And he's going to see you to dry ground. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the hope and encouragement that comes from it. I thank you, Lord, that you are with us during the storms, that you are with us during these times the times that we feel sometimes abandoned and forsaken, these long stretches of times where we're, we're just like, Lord, where are you? That you are there with us and that you have promised, you have promised us that you will see us through and you fulfill your promises. And we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for the hope that's in that. So we pray, Lord, that we can just be encouraged by that, be encouraged by your word, and encourage others with it as well. We thank you for the strength of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, that you just bless us and bless those who aren't here this week. Help us love others as you love us. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.